Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. And I'll be taking my sermon from the 24th chapter of Luke, the entire chapter as a matter of fact. There are different narratives within this, that single chapter that each narrative brings out a very important point for us. And so just to kind of summarize the entire chapter instead of reading that to you, we're going to first see where Jesus appears to the women at the empty tomb. Next, Luke follows to the account of Jesus appearing to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. After that, Jesus returns to Jerusalem and he appears to his disciples, the, the, the 11 it's called, Judas is gone. And then in the final part of that chapter, we have a short account of Jesus ascending into heaven. Now the first three accounts, the appearance to the women at the tomb, the appearance uh, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and the appearance to his disciples at Jerusalem, all three of those have this one thing in common, they all doubted. And in appearing to these, he had to overcome the doubt of his closest allies before he could go any further. They had to be convinced. And then, of course, we'll get into the ascension as we end this up today. So hang with me as we preach through this 24th chapter of Luke. There'll be some scripture on the screen from time to time. But I want to deal first with just the fact of his resurrection. And the first group, as I've already tipped my hand, is the doubters at the tomb. The scripture says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Now, although Luke in this account does not provide the names of the women, we know from other accounts that Mary Magdalene came, Mary the mother of James came, and a lady named Joanna. And if we can get into their mind, 
understand what they are feeling and what they are thinking at this point. This is a this is a gloomy day. Now this is resurrection day. We're happy about that. We came in jazzed. We're pumped. We're ready to go. You just talk about Jesus is risen and, and yeah, we're, we're all over that. These people coming to the tomb that day to witness the fact of his resurrection did not yet understand this. This was a gloomy day for them so far. They vividly remember the cruel crucifixion of their beloved Jesus. And coming this day, they were coming with the intentions of dressing the body with spices. That would not have been a pleasant task. It was not a happy visit for them as far as they were aware and concerned at this point. They went in discouragement and despair and defeat. And they come and find things not at all as they were expecting. They were in shock from the death. They were probably sick, physically sick. Probably had not eaten well or slept well since his crucifixion. The scene playing over and over again in their minds. Their senses telling them everything about what they had seen, what they knew, their senses telling them he was dead. And they fully expected arriving to see this lifeless body lying in the tomb. Now Jesus makes a personal appearance. Matthew, Mark, and John, all three mention the personal appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene. Luke doesn't focus on that in his account but we will use the other information as a background to understand Jesus did make a personal appearance to them he did indeed appear to Mary Magdalene as he did to the two on the road to Emmaus and as he did to the disciples at Jerusalem so all three groups of these doubters got a personal visit from Jesus what Luke focuses on here is this special message the angel gave to the women. And the angel gave them a basic principle that defines Jesus. That principle is, this is not the kind of person that you will find among the dead. Now, take that for what it's worth. Yes, he walked among spiritually dead people. Yes, he would visit tombs of dead people and raised Lazarus from the dead. He would touch the dead. But there's a sense in which the angel is putting forth a principle about Jesus. If you're coming to a place that keeps people captive through death, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're looking for a victim of death, you're looking in the wrong place. He would touch the dead. He would minister to dead. But he's not a part of the dead world. That's what the angel is saying is the principle of Christ. Now we need to keep that principle in mind. Fundamental truth. Why would anybody look for the living among the dead, especially as regards Jesus Christ? What the angel could have said. He could have merely said, he is not here. 
He is risen. He did say that, but he threw this other important principle into this. That would have been a fact if he'd have just said he's not here, he's risen. But the angel wanted us to understand this principle undergirding the fact of his resurrection. The living Christ, we should not expect to find him among the dead. Now, this is a great principle for us to remember. Don't look for Jesus to be an integrated part of a dead world. He is above a dead world. He's not connected to it. He's not joined to it. He goes to minister to it. He calls to call the dead out of it, but he's not a part of that system. Do not expect Jesus to be found among dead churches. Now, what do you mean by a dead church? I'm not by any means trying to imply that we have an exclusive ownership of a church being alive. There's, we got a lot of good churches in town. There's no question about that. But I'm telling you, in this day and age, when truth is being compromised, when the gospel is being replaced by entertainment, when the message of salvation is being replaced by a message of feel good and live your best life now, there's a lot of deadness going on. Don't expect to find Jesus among dead churches. And I don't mean quiet worship. Quiet doesn't mean dead any more than noisy means alive. I've been in a lot of noisy churches were as dead as they could be. There was no real move of the Spirit, just a lot of noisy people. So you don't necessarily equate it with noise. By dead, I mean those that have departed from the faith once delivered to the saints. I mean churches that quit teaching the timeless truths of God's word and they become social clubs or they've turned into social justice warriors rather than being couriers and messengers of the good news. I mean churches that believe God conforms to culture instead of preaching the message that culture must conform to God. It's deadness there. Don't expect to find Jesus there. I mean churches that don't understand the difference between inspiration and anointing. Anybody can give an inspiring speech. Doesn't mean they are anointed. I mean churches that quit being holy sanctuaries for the Holy Spirit. Paul said to a very carnal Corinthian church, do you not know that you yourselves are collectively the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in your midst. He's not talking to the individual in this passage. He's talking to the church. Don't you know? You, church, are expected to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to dwell in the church. But then he says this shocking thing. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, the church, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple so the spiritually dead church is the one that has dismantled the institution that Jesus put together and forsaken those very foundational things that make it a holy institution with Jesus at the head the next group of people the next company that Jesus pays a personal visit to is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus 
And the scripture says, now, the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened as concerning the crucifixion. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. For the women, it took the angel's subtle rebuke and the personal appearance of Jesus to open their eyes. But for the two travelers, they walked with Jesus. He he came, joined along with them, walked with them. And it's, it's it's entertaining, it's somewhat humorous if you can reconstruct this scene in your mind understand what's going on these two men are walking along they're talking about the death the crucifixion the tragedy that has just happened to this man that they loved and followed and believed in and trusted and they're walking along and their shoulders are stooped and and their feet are dragging and what are we going to do what do you think that was all about and they got all these questions and this stranger joins them And so Jesus himself is walking along and listening to them talk. He said, so what are you guys talking about? And they are incensed as they're talking to Jesus, but they don't know who he is and said, where have you been? Don't you know what has gone on? They are telling Jesus, this man that we loved, he was crucified he was buried he's gone and you get this picture in your brain that they're trying to convince Jesus of the tragedy of this and he's almost like I can't wait to see the look on their face when they suddenly realize what's going on here but he played he played along with this they walked they entered town they said to this mysterious stranger you got any place to go no come join us for supper Jesus was glad to. He goes and he sits down. And as he sits there, he blesses the food, and all of a sudden they go, it's you! Their eyes were opened. He made an appearance to them to prove to them he was risen from the dead. Here's what Jesus said to them. This is how... May I use the word dense? We can be so dense. I mean, let's don't just criticize the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We are reading a description of humanity here. Truth can be right there, and you just can't see it. Come on, people, preach with me here. How many of you know somebody you can put truth right there, and they can't see it? And we're looking at this and we see those pitiful men. No, pitiful us. Pitiful family, pitiful neighbors, pitiful friends, pitiful world. The truth is right there. They can't see it. And Jesus, is, he was walking along with them. He said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? 
And he began with Moses and the prophets and explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And it did not penetrate their brain. He was telling them in no uncertain terms and they didn't get it. Until he broke the loaf of bread and he blessed it. And it was an eye-opener for them. And then he disappeared. He didn't even stay and eat the food. I got other things to do. He broke the bread. They recognized who he was, and he just dematerialized. <laughs> and then, then they started trying to make excuses. And they said, you know, didn't, didn't our hearts burn within us the whole time? And one of them probably said, you know, I had a sneaking suspicion. No, you didn't. <laughs> you were clueless. Jesus now goes to the doubters in Jerusalem. These are his guys. These are the hand-picked ones. He had, had a dozen of them, and, and Judas sold him out and went and hanged himself. And so you got 11 left. <clears throat> and Jesus said, well, I've got some more people I have to go convince. So he goes to Jerusalem, and they, weren't they were not celebrating the resurrection. They were as gloomy and despairing as the other two groups. They were emotionally trying to process the violent death of their master. They still had fresh in their minds that vision of his lacerated body, suspended by nails on a wooden cross. They couldn't shake from their memory the haunting sound of his labored breathing and the death rattle in his throat, the sickening sight of a man beaten beyond human recognition. Beaten so bad that the prophet from the Old Testament, Isaiah, tried to describe him and said, we turned our heads. We couldn't look at it. Here they sit in this room playing these memories over and over in their minds as they huddle together and they ask each other questions. Were we just taken for a ride? Are we the biggest fools in the world? Did this man convince us of something that is not true? We wasted three years of our lives following him around and he made all these promises and he convinced us and suddenly we watched him being crucified and he's gone and he's dead and he's buried and what how are we going to explain this to our families how do you go back and tell them that we went on a wild goose chase for three years and deserted our responsibilities to take care of them because we believed in this man and now he's gone I mean these they're they are wrapped with questions and tormented with the possibility they've made some wrong decisions in their life What's going to happen to us now? Where do we go? What do we do? We must have been fools. And if it was the Son of God, how would he possibly allow himself to be treated like that and crucified? They didn't know what to think. And so Jesus suddenly appears to them. And once again, like the women at the tomb who saw Jesus but thought he was a gardener, 
like the disciples on the road to Emmaus who saw Jesus but thought he was just a fellow sojourner. The disciples, the apostles there in the room saw Jesus and instead of shouting and praising God and jumping and dancing and celebrating, they said, it's a ghost. And they got literally frightened. Now, the Jews were rather superstitious people anyway. They always believed in ghosts, but they didn't get to see one very often. But here's one, and sure enough, our greatest fears have come to pass. We are here in the worst mood of our life, and a ghost comes to see us. Can it get any worse than this? These two from Emmaus played into this scene a little bit. They ran back, they beat Jesus there, and they began to excitedly tell him, tell them, we have saw him, he's alive. They were pumped. And in the middle of the disciples from Emmaus, trying to tell these disciples he's alive, that's when Jesus appeared, and then they all got scared. And they couldn't process the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus then went to great extents. He said, how about if I let you touch me? Now, who wants to touch a ghost? What does it feel like to touch a ghost? I'm scared of this being. He said, go ahead and touch me. It's okay. And they still were not convinced, according to Luke's account, until he said, do you have anything to eat? Now, isn't it interesting that it all circles around him eating or breaking bread. And there was something about that that we cannot explain why that was significant. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. Then when he sat down to eat with them, suddenly they realized. When he said, I need something to eat, suddenly they realized. And that's the moment at which their eyes were opened. And this is a commentary, not just on the blindness of the women or the disciples on the road to Emmaus, or his own hand-picked inner circle, but it strikes us square in the face of how stubborn we can be and how some people simply refuse to receive the simplest of truths. Now, it was while Jesus met with the 11 there in Jerusalem, and they finally came to see and understand this is Jesus, that he now told them about their next step. Let me pause there for just a minute. I want to go back to the the doubters. The women doubted at the grave. Uh, The two disciples doubted on the road to Emmaus. The, The 11 disciples, apostles, doubted there in Jerusalem. And before we get too overly critical of these people doubting, let me share this with you. It was important that these people doubted and were convinced. And I'll tell you why. See, at first we look at this and we say they walked with Jesus, they listened to his teachings, he told them repeatedly, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to be crucified. He told them, some of it was a little bit cryptic, but it got more and more uh, uh, clear as time went on. Uh, Even at that time when he's having that last supper with them. 
and telling them of what was going to be happen. He was going to be betrayed and turned over. And he told them, and they didn't process it. And then he was crucified, buried, and he rose again, and they came to see him, and they still couldn't believe it. There's a lot of doubt here, but here's the good thing about the doubt. Had these people been thoroughly convinced and anticipating that he was going to rise from the dead, had their message to the world been, sure, you killed him, but Judas, wait and see. He's going to come back. He's going to be alive. He's going to be here with us. Don't you understand that with that mentality, they would have been surely accused of self-fulfillment. I mean, already with the, with the empty tomb, there was rumor circulating around about that from the enemies. How are we going to explain this empty tomb? And they said, I know, let's say that the disciples came and stole the body. That'll work. That'll cover us. So you see, there was already a tendency to want to accuse them of making the appearance of uh, a resurrection. But had these people believed it, embraced it, and anticipated it, it would have went down in history for the skeptics and the scoffers to say, well, they expected it to happen. They promised it was going to happen. They had to make it look like it happened. They were obligated, or they were going to look like real fools. But these people did not expect it. They doubted it. They said it can't be possible. It can't be real. So they were taken out of the equation. They had to be convinced against their bias and against their prejudice that their Lord Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. That goes a long ways in establishing the validity and the power of this testimony. It goes a long ways when you have somebody who formerly in their life was an atheist, but they came to the point of their eyes being open and they became a follower of Jesus. It goes a long ways to read the story of C.S. Lewis, who was a, a brilliant uh, scholar within his own rights, but he was a full-fledged, full-blown, dyed-in-the-wool, red-blooded atheist. It wasn't until Jesus was revealed to him that he flipped over and became a Christian. Against his objections, against his biases, he was convinced of the truth. That's a powerful testimony. It's a powerful testimony of, of Paul, who was Saul, who hated Jesus, who hated the church, suddenly to be arrested by Jesus himself and become the greatest advocate and convert in early Christianity. That's a great testimony. And so Jesus reveals himself to them, and he begins to give them a little instruction and a little teaching. He, he opened up, the Bible says, he opened up their minds so they could understand the scripture. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Notice this part. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send... You, what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Now, think about this. These 11 had been trained and equipped to go out as evangelists. You want to go back and read the account of him commissioning 
his disciples to go out and he sent them out two by two and they went out and they prayed for the sick and the sick were healed and they came back rejoicing demons are subject unto us and Jesus said that's not as good that's not as big as the fact your names are written in the Lamb's book of life this is child's play down here the fact that you are saved your name's written in the Lamb's book of life that's really something to get excited about and so they went out and they performed miracles. Miracles happened at their hands. And Jesus took this band of little troubadours and he said, you're going to need some power if you're going to minister for me. What do you mean need power? You, look what we did. Look, look, at the, look at the miracles that happened. Look at the healings that happened. What kind of power can you possibly be inferring we need? We know what it's like to see miracles flow from our hands. And this is the important point. Jesus said, I'm talking about a different kind of power. They didn't need at this point the kind of power that would heal the sick and raise the dead. That, that, that's going to be taken care of. They needed the kind of power that would keep them from huddling in secret, in a room, out of fear for their life. They needed something that would get them out of that room and hit the streets and take the message. He said, you need some power here. It's, it's all fine and well when you go around and you can heal the sick, raise the dead, whatever you do. But whenever you're hiding in this room, you don't have the kind of power it needs. It requires to minister for me. I'm going to give you some boldness. Jesus expected them to take a message to the world. And the message he expected them to take was not just the message, he is risen. Because that message alone doesn't impress the world. They, they're skeptics about it. Or they, they say, yeah, so what? I mean, that is the foundation of our message. It's important that we know he's risen. It's important that we have the proof he's risen. It's important he presented that proof to these people, but that's not the message he wanted us to take to the world. We don't go to the world and say, did you know he's risen? They say, so what? Try it. They don't care. You know what message he told them you're going to have to have power to take? He said, you're going to have to have power, strength, to be able to take the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. That is the message of the resurrection. And that's the message that is not being preached enough today. It's easy to gather here and get all thrilled because he is risen. He is risen indeed. But where's the message that Jesus said, I want you to take to the world. I want you to tell the world they need to repent. I want you to tell the world there is forgiveness for their sins. And whenever they challenge you and say, why do we need to repent? Then you can tell them, because he's risen. Because nobody else has ever conquered death. Because he came and walked on this, on this earth, gave his life as a sacrifice for everybody, rose from the dead, and if he did that, everything else has to fall in place. It all hinges on the resurrection. Therefore, you need to repent. Why? Because he is Lord. He proved himself, Lord. That's why you need to repent, because he has the message. He has the proof. He has the power of resurrection. You will answer to him one of these days. So the message of the resurrection, you need to repent. 
And you need to understand there is forgiveness for your sins. And that's not a popular message. People don't want to come to church and be told you need to repent. They want to walk away and feel like the preacher made them feel special. You are special. You need to repent. There's forgiveness for your sins. The power to preach the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins requires something of you. You see, the power to heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, requires very little of you. You know what it requires of you? Be there. That's all it requires. God does all the work. You just have to be available. But the power to preach the forgiveness of sins, you have to do that work. And the Holy Spirit will give you the strength and the courage to do that, but you have to be willing to open your mouth. You have to be willing to preach that message. You have to be willing to confront people, and you have to be willing sometimes to suffer persecution because you have preached that message. So it involves you a whole lot more than the other. The other one's fun. This one's not fun. This one's necessary. In sharing the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, God depends on you to be strong enough to be faithful to that message. That's why you need the encounter with the Holy Spirit that he promised to give you the courage and the strength to share the good news with others. What is the good news? There's, there is forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. It's based on the resurrection, of course. And then we come to the final part of the 24th chapter of Luke and we've dealt with uh, the fact of the resurrection and the message of the resurrection now I want to tell you about the promise and the hope of the resurrection and it says in the final verses of Luke chapter 24 when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany he lifted up his hands and blessed them and while he was blessing them he left them and he was taken up into heaven very short concise little account and Luke is the only gospel writer that records the account of the ascension the others don't Luke wrote this makes you wonder why the others didn't but he wrote this and Luke wrote the, the book of Luke Luke wrote the book of Acts so the book of Acts is a continuation of all of Luke's uh, theology they just flow together But if you read the first chapter of Acts, you'll find that the first 10 verses are kind of a summary, a recap of the 24th chapter of Luke. He goes back and picks up some of these elements and puts them all into short, concise little 10 verses. But then he ends that little cluster of verses once again on the account of the, of the ascension. His account in his, his gospel is a very short account. He was blessing them, he raised his hands, he ascended. But you go to the book of Acts, and he, he enlarges on that. There's more details there. So here's what he says in his Acts book. Sixth verse. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It was heavy on their mind. 
I mean, here's their Messiah. He came here. They knew he was on a mission. They hoped the mission was that he was going to deliver them from Roman authorities. He was going to set up his kingdom. The kingdom has now come. Everything was going to be great with Jesus at the helm of the world. And are you now going to set up your kingdom? And he said, not yet. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Not yet. It'll happen someday, but you can, you'll have to wait. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up from before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now they were looking up intently, and who wouldn't? As he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white came and stood beside them, kind of like the two men dressed in white at the tomb. Angelic messengers come and making a fuller explanation of things. And these two men said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back. We'll come back. See, the hope and the promise of the resurrection is so intrinsically tied to his second coming. The fact of his resurrection and his ascension loudly proclaims he's coming back. That's a message of the resurrection we don't often hear tied together, but it's so plain here. When they were standing there looking at him going away and wondering, now what? I mean, every stage of, the, uh, of this thing, they, they don't know where to go from here. He's crucified, now what? He's risen, now what? He's ascended, now what? Well, there's always an answer to that. They stand there gazing as long as they can see him, looking at the spot where he used to be and just staring at it. Now what? Now what? The angels come down and say, this means he's coming back. Don't forget that. The message, he is risen, is incomplete without the message He's coming again. The two are tied. They are bookends. They have to go together. And so I'm not trying to be critical of our habits. We come here on Easter Sunday. And our big message is he's risen. He's risen. He's risen. But I'm challenging people, don't forget. That's half the message. He's risen and he's coming again. That's the whole message. I mean, they, without, that, without that, you might as well say he's risen and he's gone. He's risen and he's gone for good. But he's not. He's coming back. And that's a vitally important and timely message for this sick and twisted world we're living in. He, he's gone, but he didn't desert us. It's, a, it's an incomplete message until we complete it with the fact he left, but he's coming back. He didn't leave and desert us and turn this world over to all the wicked men to do what they desire with his world. This is still his world, and he's coming back to reclaim it from those who have sought to take it for their own. And as surely as our Lord is risen, let it be established, he's coming soon. That's the message and the hope and the joy and the promise of the resurrection. I want you to bow your heads.